old building entirely just crushed and crumbled. I'm not sure if it's safe to report from my vantage point. I I really need to leave. So the fences informed me that the surrounding areas are, are in ruin. I I see some people running now. And the opinion of this reporter, if this nation or in fact the world ever needed heroes, that time is now. That time is now. Exciting episode of the Fire and Water Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, and with me, as always, is the Irascalable Rob. Rob, how you doing? Topo the afternoon to you, Shag. Ugh. <laughs> Aqua jokes, great. Well, folks, um, we are very excited today. Uh, we have got a very special episode. We have a guest with us today. Uh, we have brought in a fellow comic book blogger. We are spreading the disease. Um, I wanted to take a second to introduce our guest. He is uh, – well, I'm going to say some nice things about him <laughs> up front because I have no intention of saying anything nice later. I promise that. Uh, he is a guest with a tremendous amount of background in comic book fandom. Back in the day, in the 90s, during the big comic book boom, he, he worked in a comic book shop. He's got like an encyclopedic knowledge of major and minor comic book publishers that consistently uh, astounds me. He writes uh, six, yes, count them, six different comic book blogs because apparently he can't sleep. Uh, he can crank out something like 20,000 words in like no time flat. I'll, I'll give him an idea and blah, suddenly it's like five pages long. It's amazing. Uh, he was one of the inspirations for me personally to uh, help to start creating the Firestorm fan site. And uh, he's participated in a number of blogging crossovers. And he's been a huge supporter of the Fire and Water podcast and has been our most prolific commenter. So, folks, um, I'd like to introduce you to the man who is never afraid to speak his mind. And for you expert, for you people looking for an expert in DC bloodlines, here's your man, Diabolu Frank. Oh, God, you actually got it right. Ah, oh, man. See, I was looking forward to some, like, doobie-doo, Frank, something bizarro, but you actually pronounced it correctly this time. Well, I mean, you know, we're going to talk about the idle head of Dominatrix later. Don't worry about it. <laughs> well, and it was kind of cool, too. I, I appreciate you giving me a shout-out, and then I have to pay it forward to Rob because Rob was the reason why I started the Martian Manhunter blog because oh, I had a site back in the late 90s. Don't blame me don't, for that. Well, see, I'm getting to that. <laughs> see, back in the late 90s, I had a, a fan site on Web TV, which is a story unto itself, and I'd let that – 
uh, lay fallow for about five years. And then I started looking at Raw's blog and I was like, hey, I could do that, thinking, you know, like a fool that, that was going to be something easy to do. <laughs> I could do that. Look at that idiot. He could do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is sort of like the, the chain of infection for HIV from Shag to me to Rob. So it all comes back to you. You're patient zero, Rob. Oh, fantastic. This is not the first time, but that's, that's for my <laughs> documents. I kind of liked it better when I called him the godfather of comic book Yeah, I, I did like that better than Patient Zero, I have to say. <laughs> oh, so. Well, Frank, thanks for coming on our show. I'm, I'm glad to be here. I hope that I don't befoul it for your normal fans who are probably going to get sick of my voice by the time this show is over with. Well, our ulterior motive is that, uh, as I mentioned, you're our most prolific commenter. You're always, like, you know, picking on us and being, you know, a real jerk. So I was kind of hoping that all you listeners out there will be happy to belittle and pick on Frank in the comments this time around, just to help spread the love a little. Well, we were we're, we're, we're following that old Abraham Lincoln aphorism about better have better to have somebody uh, inside the tent pissing out than rather outside the tent pissing in. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny they didn't teach my daughter that in kindergarten. <laughs> oh. Frank, why don't you tell the folks at home uh, about your sad uh, sad addiction and um, and what you do with your computer? Okay. Oh my. Well, I was. <laughs> Not everything. Let me check my history. Anyhow, um, you had already threatened me that I had to speak about each of my blogs. So I'm going to try to knock those out as quickly as possible. As I <laughs> and then in hour three. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, okay. Started out with the Martian Manhunter blog. It's called the Idlehead of Diabolu. Uh, it's called that because I didn't want to have to be the guy who did all things Martian Manhunter. I didn't want to be to the Martian Manhunter what Rob is to Aquaman, what you are to Firestorm. But since nobody else wants the role, I'm kind of stuck in it. Let's blog. <laughs> <laughs> that really surprised you? <laughs> but well, and also, you guys both adopted your characters fairly early in life, so you have this long-time, deep affection that, that ties into great nostalgia. With me, even though I was familiar with the Marshman character for years, and I had a, an enjoyment of that character, I didn't really become a hardcore fan until the late 90s as an adult. So I kind of come at it at a more critical perspective, I think, on my character. I tend to knock the Marshman Hunter more than you guys will knock your characters. So I kind of wanted to have, it's not a shrine, it's the Idlehead, it's named after a Marshman Hunter villain, so I wanted to have the opportunity to both applaud and criticize the Manhunter and his, and his uh, creators. And everything else about him because there's a lot there to make fun of. Um, what's, so, uh, what's the URL for that so people can find it? Oh, they, they have this thing called Google now. It's really <laughs> handy. If you type in Idlehead or Marshman or Blog, it'll pop right up. It's real easy. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. Nice. Now, uh, now, the second blog that I came up with was Justice League Detroit. I did not create a Justice League Detroit blog on purpose. I have to put that out there. Even though I'm a defender of that team, um, I, I wouldn't have done that on, uh, intentionally. What had happened was because I had the, the Marshman Hunter uh, site back in the late 90s, Web TV was a very limited interface with the Internet. And basically I could only get four pages done before I'd run out of space on a website on a, at a web address, and I had to create a whole new site to continue. So that's how I was used to constructing the site. So I thought, okay, well, I'll create this Justice League Detroit blog just like I did with Web TV, and I'll put all the Justice League Detroit stuff there, not realizing you have things like links now, and, and it would be a lot easier to have done that. So I created the blog, and then it was just a vestigial thing. It's like, okay, well, it exists. I better go ahead and keep contributing to it. And even though I, I really like certain characters, uh, there are other characters that – you know, I, I'm pretty sure you're a bigger fan of Vibe than I could ever possibly be. I love uh, me some Vibe, ladies and uh, gentlemen. That is not a joke. Yeah, I'm trying to keep it clean. Anyhow, 
Um, so I enjoy a lot of those characters. I tend maybe to focus too much on certain characters. I spend a lot of time with Aquaman. That's really unnecessary considering there's a very fine blog that like knocks out five or six posts a day now. Good <laughs> Lord, Rob. Um, so they don't really need me contributing to the Aquaman fandom. But I also get in there with Vixen and some of the other ones that I'm really fond of. But th- that one's kind of taking a back seat to a large degree this year as I've been working on other things. Okay, after the Just League Detroit blog, I had the Adam blog. That blog exists because... Um, just just uh, say it. It's just for Shag, really. <laughs> well, it. I'd actually... I'd wanted to do a crossover a couple of years ago, and I wanted the Tiny Titan blog, which I was a, a great fan of, to uh, continue in some fashion. And Damien Mafai, the guy who was running that blog, had retired from blogging. So it was a way of trying to bring him back or to bring Adam Fandom back. And um, there isn't a lot of Adam Fandom out there. So then I tried to add some Captain Adam Fandom, which is like, okay, you got a tenth of the fandom of Firestorm, and then you're adding like a half of that tenth of the fandom of Firestorm, <laughs> and that's supposed to sustain a blog. But so that's Power of the Atom, and it's supposed to be related to uh, the Ray Palmer Adam and to Captain Adam. I'm envisioning uh, like the saddest pie chart anyone's ever seen. Know, it really is. <laughs> um, Don't worry, it gets smaller. Keep going. <laughs> well, no, actually, uh, Diana Prince is the new Wonder Woman. It has a decent little following. Um, I could easily do a daily Wonder Woman blog. I love that character so much, and it's a it's a love that goes back to childhood in the way that Firestorm and Aquaman does for you guys. It's just that there's already so many Wonder Woman fans out there doing so many wonderful things, no pun intended. Um, you don't really need me out there doing a daily Wonder Woman blog the way that you need me out there doing a Marsh Manor blog because, again, nobody else is going to do that. Um, so anyway, so there's the one-on-one blog. And then finally I did DC Bloodlines, uh, in part because I had to stop myself. I had this disease, thanks to Rob. Yeah, you know, it's like the herpes of blogging. Um, wow, we're just continuing with that. Okay. <laughs> of course. Um, I had to find a way of stopping myself from creating any more DC blogs. So DC Bloodlines is the place where I stick everything else. And if I ever collapse any of the other blogs, I'll probably collapse there. I'd also had these grand visions of doing like a comic alliance of bloggers there and making it a clubhouse for all of us to write about all of our other characters. And that never really happened. So now, again, it's sort of like Just League of Tour. There's a vestigial quality where there's a couple other guys that kind of knock out stuff every now and again. And then whatever the hell else I feel like they're dumping up there, that goes on DC Bloodlines. Um, and then finally, to wrap this up, and I'm, I apologize to your listeners because I know they're already sick of hearing about this. But I have one other blog called NURG. Uh, that's N-U-R-G-H. It's an onomatopoeia. And basically, any other thing that I want to deal with on the planet goes into NERG. And not a lot's been going there. mostly been reviews. Um, but just whatever I feel like doing. I'll have a Lord of the Rings, uh, Lord of the Flies. God, I hate Lord of the Rings. I'll have a Lord of the Flies character <laughs> between the movies and the book. And I'll do movie reviews, comic reviews, all that kind of stuff, whatever. Occasionally, I'll delve into softcore uh, videos, which Shag is quite a connoisseur of, from what I understand. You know and, uh, <laughs> And so that there's our blogs. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Fire and Water. <laughs> is is he done? I, I, I went to the grocery store. Is he done? <laughs> I'm just amazed. That, I'll just edit these things. I'm just amazed that when Frank went to register the Bloodlines blog name, that it wasn't already taken. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't do it really you couldn't have gone for like i don't know showcase or brave and the bold or dc comics presents you had to go with or, or even i don't know i'm trying to think final night anything but bloodlines i mean come on I, I can explain this though the thing is i came in with more when I, I was a marvel fan in the 80s and i became a dc fan in the 90s and so my transition period was the mulleted 90s where you've got 
Nightwing running around with those stupid wings under his armpits and things like that. So Bloodlines was one of the first big events where I collected the entire thing. And, of course, they were introducing all those new characters. So I have a familiarity and an enjoyment of the Bloodlines characters beyond probably what anybody else on the face of the planet has. So that's one of the reasons why I chose that. I also chose that because there's a tendency for blogs to be very nostalgia-driven and very 70s and 80s-centric. So if I was going to do a DC blog, I wanted to do something a little bit more 90s because I actually became a DC fan in the 90s. That's where my heart is to a large degree, even though I loved a lot of the 80s stuff and stuff that came out prior. So it was sort of like identifying, yes, I do want to do Deathstroke post over 90s. Yes, I'm going to cover all these characters that had blades and blood and all this ridiculousness about themselves. Because DC, to some degree, handled that better than most, because they at least tried to imbue that with some characterization and some thought, as opposed to the Rob Liefeld stuff, which, actually, he's doing a lot of that stuff for DC now. Oh, (laughs) it's a shame. I keep going back to that site looking for some stuff on it. I expect daily posts on the Cybabats and what they've been up to, but it's just not there. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I failed you. (laughs) it's one of those things that's the problem with having so many blogs is there's so many things I want to do but there's only so many hours in the day but the Cybobats time will come honestly it is it's a real and I said I wouldn't say anything nice but uh, it's a real testament to you to how much you can crank out it is astonishing how much content you put out there I am consistently impressed with how many blog postings I have to ignore on a daily basis from you it's <laughs> really impressive so yeah I want to be like the what was that fellow's name Paul Nelson what Paul Newman oh, Paul Newman what, what yeah Paul? the writer yeah, yeah the, the most prolific right. comic book writer yeah yeah but of course nobody remembers Paul Newman for a reason <laughs> Sa- salad dressing guy right <laughs> Most prolific well, comic book writer of all time, and also two-time Oscar winner. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, we we did we we had Frank on the show not just um, to mock him, but that is part of the the side benefit, but to discuss some comic books. Um, Rob, you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, uh, we we talked about you know wanting to have a guest on the show, and um, there was a couple people at the top of our list, and none of those people were available. So Frank is here, and we're gonna. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to, yeah, come on. That's obvious. Um, anyway, we're going to discuss uh, the three-part uh, Justice League uh, storyline, which took place. At, I don't know if there was a – Frank, is there like an overarching term for those three yes, issues? Yes, it, it's, it's War of the Worlds 1984, although they didn't decide to name it until the second chapter. Okay. <laughs> Good planning. Um, so basically, <laughs> the War of the Worlds storyline, which took place in Justice League of America number 228, 229, and 230 – which brought uh, Martian Manhunter into the fold. So you see why we had Frank on um, and, you know, basically brought him back into JLA history and of course set the stage for the wholesale changes that were uh, in the offing for the Justice League. And we just figured since, you know, it is probably, in fact, I shouldn't even say probably, it is the only story that features Aquaman, Firestorm, and Martian Manhunter prominently. Uh, you know, it just seemed perfectly uh, jerry conway must have designed it with with in, in it with us in mind uh, 20 years in the past that, that, are, that is saint conway yeah, saint conway this would be the perfect series for us to cover because it's features our three characters in in prominent ways so that's uh, that's why we have frank here to uh, talk about this uh, you know kind of historic series so we we're going to start off with um jla of course the first chapter is jla number 228 um, it came out. It was cover dated uh, July 1984. Um, it's written by Jerry Conway, penciled by George Tuska, and, and 
Thank you, Shaggy. We're waiting. We're lying in wait. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes, uh, we're, we're, we're going to let you actually get through your recap first, Rob, before we make comments. And, That's probably and, the uh, safest bet. And inked by Alex uh, Nino. Um, this this issue, uh, it, it opens, the cover is by uh, Chuck Patton, the great Chuck Patton, the great underrated Chuck Patton. And it has uh, Martian Manor coming out of the water, pasting Aquaman 1. And uh, you've got uh, Firestorm uh, ready to blast uh, Martian Manhunter, and then you've got Zatanna and a long gay man doing nothing. Um, it, what else is new? What else is new, exactly. <laughs> Only a fool would make them the main members of a team. Um, oh. So anyway, <laughs> um, the issue opens on Mars, and you we see uh, Martian Manhunter climbing into a small spaceship, and he's clearly being chased by someone else in another ship. Uh, John makes it to Earth, and um, we see that the people following him are his fellow Martians. One of them is named Jaen. <laughs> all the Martians uh, have those annoying J names, um, the little apostrophes. And um, we also learn that, that she has like a thing for Martian Manhunter, even though she's pursuing him. And uh, they talk about John having betrayed, uh, betrayed their people. So, uh, on board the JLA satellite, Aquaman notices this, um, and the various members of the team, like including uh, Green Iron, Black Canary, Red Tornado, are there as well. Uh, Aquaman notices, it, notices this. The ship uh, makes its way to Earth. It falls onto the east coast of the United States. The Manhunter's ship is hit by uh, an Air Force missile. And uh, Aquaman mentions that he's annoyed that the, the Air Force does the whole shoot first, ask questions later kind of thing. And he's kind of testy with the JLA here. In fact, there's one point where he fl flat out, uh, Red Tornado offers an opinion on something. And Aquaman says, when I want a lecture on humanity or tornado, I'll ask for it. Oh, boy. So uh, he heads down underwater. Uh, he tries to talk to Martian Manhunter versus, uh, via his mental telepathy. Um, Manhunter bursts out. Firestorm, who doesn't have a whole lot of experience with Manhunter, uh, attacks him. The rest of the JLAs are trying to, like, you know, hey, stop, Firestorm. Uh, Martian Manhunter collapses into a heap into the lap of Hawk Girl, which is, you know, hey, good, good, good move, John. Uh, we found out that Manhunter explains what has happened on his home planet of Mars 2. Uh, he has stumbled upon a group called the Soldiers of the Red Brotherhood, a militia movement whose leader wants to, uh, wants Mars to conquer Earth. Um... And the issue ends with uh, the JLA sort of comprehending what they're facing, which is, you know, nothing short of a, a you know, an entire planet attacking Earth. And uh, the, um, Red Tornado helpfully uh, calls it a war of the worlds. And that is the end of the first issue of this, uh, this big storyline. You know, the stakes couldn't be any higher. Yeah, actually, that's one of the things I loved about the story was the first two pages, you've got those six panels that just build up. You know, the first page is nothing but showing man's slow ascent into the stars, you know, getting into the first uh, uh, satellite, getting to the, uh, uh, the moon, getting to Mars, and then you show that accomplishment, and then you go, and this is the end of human accomplishment for the rest of time. It really sells what a momentous event this is supposed to be. Yeah, Jerry Conway definitely makes it. You know, makes you feel like this is this isn't you know pretty. I mean, you know, these superheroes face this kind of stuff all the time. But Conway does make it seem like this is you know particularly huge. 
And he did something very similar for the first Detroit story arc too, where, but with that one, he sold it even more by going back to the dinosaurs and showing extinction level events just to build up, of all people, the Overmaster. Right. <laughs> and his, and his delightful cadre of misfits that look like they came out of Cirque du Soleil or something. Well, <laughs> many months ago, longtime listeners of the Fire and Water podcast may recall I said that uh, the name George Tuska should never be mentioned on this show. And t- this is a good example as to why. I couldn't stand the art in this issue. Drove me crazy. I mean, here you've got this amazing cover by Chuck, Chuck Patton. You know, you've got all this great interior, um, you know, uh, buildup and everything. But the art just is a letdown. I mean, tell me I'm wrong here. I mean, uh, well, no, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. The, the art is a letdown. There's no doubt about it. There is absolutely no doubt about it. The the problem is is that I have with with people is and you specifically, Shay. Um, <laughs> Is I think George Tuska uh, is and was a great comic book artist. Unfortunately, I mean, like a lot of comic book artists that grew up, uh, sort of made their bones in the '40s and the '50s. You know, they excelled at other genres. Um, Tuska had a long career in crime comics, and which he's perfectly suited uh, for that kind of material because his stuff was, you know, his his men tend to look kind of bulky and beefy. Um, but you know, like as crime comics went the way of the Dodo Bird. You know, he had to either go find a new career or have to accept assignments that weren't his, you know, forte. And a lot of comic book artists got shoved, you know, shoved into doing superheroes when they weren't really uh, – didn't have a great facility at it. And now I thought Tuska at times could do superheroes pretty well. He drew Iron Man for a long time, and I thought he did an okay job on that. But I mean but by this point – you know, I mean, he was born in 1916, so, like, by the time you're talking... Holy this, crap! Yeah, by the time you're talking this comic, he's 70 years old. He's, you know, and he just, you know, the, this kind of, like, sci-fi heavy stuff, I just don't think was, was his forte. Um, Actually, if I can interrupt you, or I'm going to, and did, um, I don't think sci you know, I'm, I'm, now I'll say something nice. Um, I don't think sci-fi is actually his problem. Because if you look at the first two pages of, of the this astronaut landing on the moon, and you look at like the space shuttle entering the atmosphere and the planes and stuff, he can actually draw that kind of stuff really good. Yeah, I guess I shouldn't say sci-fi. It's more superhero. It's, yeah, it's the, it's the superhero spandex world that he seems to really struggle with. Yeah, and 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 you know that's really more like the fault of the DC editors for getting him to do it. You know what I mean? And especially that. They had him draw the first chapter of the of this huge story, like that. Ha, getting a fill in artist, who, who, which is essentially who he was, getting a fill in artist to draw the first chapter of a huge storyline. That's just that's just not that's just bad planning. You know what I mean? Like that's just yeah. That 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 really would be the equivalent, and maybe not to this level, but of like you know the build up for the new fifty two, and it's like oh, this first issue though of Action Comics, we got a fill in guy to do it. Like what? So it. I, you know, like, I mean, yeah, like I said, if you just look at the art by itself, you say this is not very good, but I just feel like Tuska deserves a little more respect from comic fans that he gets. But, and also, the material he excelled at, nobody sees. I mean, crime comics are not collected. They're not, like, put in nice, big, absolute editions. Nobody knows all that stuff. That stuff's just gone. 
So, you know, the, word, the, the this first book does not look great. <laughs> is, well, I just well, wanted between, you to oh, – go, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, between this and uh, the other George Tuska issue that always sticks out in my mind is another superhero comic that was a disappointment. It was um, the one of the early issues in the Firestorm Blue Devil crossover um, in 86, which was a, a, a big, big thing for me. I was so excited because I love this character so much. And I opened the comic, and it was George Tuska. So it's uh, I have a special resentment for him. Yeah, but I hear what, I hear what you're saying though. Yeah, it's it's just it's just he's the wrong guy for this story, and you know you you know you could say well he didn't have to take it or whatever, but you know um, and he just said he just didn't have a facility. I mean Firestorm's the flame that shoots out of Firestorm's head it looks like a perm. It yeah. doesn't look like fire. There's lots of mistakes where you see Hawkgirl with like no wings behind her. So I mean like there's just you know. Um, but but you know, they, they should have found somebody just a more appropriate for for how big of a story this was, and this was a big story. As an Aquaman fan, this perplexed me because in this one, Aquaman is a giant dick. Uh, <laughs> well, he's treated like a he's treated like a chump too. I mean, Martian Manhunter just smashes him underwater. Yeah, but I mean, before that though, he's really like you know he's being very insulting to his fellow teammates, you know. And he there's this panel after he insults Red Tornado, which, you know, frankly, that doesn't require a lot of ex- excuse to be nasty to Red Tornado. <laughs> but, I mean, he, he goes down and there's a scene of him down in the water and he's railing against all the filth and the garbage that, that people dump in the water, which, you know, yeah. But it's like, what is that, new? You know, like, he's been doing that. Why are you mad at Red Tornado about that? So, like, that was a big shock for me that it was like they clearly were heading somewhere of him being kind of pissy. You know, yeah. and uh, I mean, to the point where he's taking it out on his fellow teammates. So well, a lot of this, a lot of this, just transference, though, because he's pissed at the, teen, the teammates that aren't there. Right, and that right then, and that's I mean, we don't know that yet, but that's a good, yep. you know, that, that that's a good job of Jerry Conway like layering it in that it's like the members that are here of 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 the of the JLA members, the only original member is Aquaman. The rest of them are off doing something else, and that's going to that's that's a seed planted. Uh, that's mm-hmm. going to pay off in the later issues. Frank, you were going to say something there. Go ahead. Well, I, I, I have so many different things. <laughs> Go. Uh, the first thing with Aquaman, I kind of felt like what they were doing here is, you remember uh, when Denny O'Neill took over Justice League back in the late 60s, he, he began this thing where he would assign personalities to characters that hadn't really had a distinct personality before. Right. And to me, it almost seemed like this was a late-term version of that. Aquaman had already been kind of getting a little bit more pissy during the Steve Skeets days of the revival with Jim Aparo, where his son's dead, his marriage is busting up. It makes sense for him to be angry, but the problem is there's not a lot of aqua guys, you know, oceanic guys, and that's Namor's personality. You pretty much have to be a nicer guy as Aquaman, and for no other reason than otherwise you just have the same character with the same powers in two different universes, which was always Red Tornado's problem. Because you've already got the vision, why do you need Red Tornado? Um, so why would you need Aquaman if you're going to have two Namors instead? So uh, another thing I was going to say is that there are actually collectors of crime comics. It's just that you had the, uh, uh, the, the, the Wortham era come along where they shut all that stuff down in the 50s, all the horror stuff, all the crime stuff. Crime was huge in the 1950s. Sure was. The, Yes, and basically what happened is the reason why it was huge is because they could do th- stuff in the comics that they could not do in the movies and they could not do on television. So that gave comics a niche, to, and that's why they were ma- still making money in the 1950s while they were competing with television. Once that got shut down, that's one of the reasons why the entire industry kind of collapsed is because there wasn't 
another thing to fill that that role once crime and horror were gone. And that's probably part of Tuska's problem is that he was really good at drawing those type of comics. He probably made a pretty good living doing that. And then all of a sudden that business drew up for drew, uh, 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 but out for no other reason than because some parents got pissed off and started burning comic books in the in the neighborhood. Um, but when you mentioned Tusco and Iron Man, I've got a friend. His favorite character is Iron Man, and he moans a lot about that because Iron Man's suddenly a very popular character after years of neglect and years of being the other superhero amongst the Marvel heroes. And one of the reasons for that was guys like Don Heck and George Tusco drawing him throughout the 1960s and 70s. Yeah, I, like I said, I mean, yeah, there I'm sure people who collect crime comics, but it's just, it's, it's. You know, like the 40s Archie comics are being reprinted again and like a lot of – like the the 40s Dick Briefer Frankenstein. A lot of that classic Golden Age stuff is being dusted off and reprinted, but you just don't see the crime comic stuff. Not as much. I I know Gladstone was doing some of the stuff that EC had done, but I think maybe in part because a lot of that stuff fell into the public domain. Maybe there's not a good financial incentive for reprinting it, but you'd think that there would be still some market for it. And certainly the original issues, there was definitely still a market for it. It's just that superheroes came to die dominate because everything else got washed out after the 50s right let me just before we turn this into the uh, george tusca podcast i'm gonna tell one last little story about george tusca <laughs> here i read this on wikipedia um he worked in a uh, george tusca worked in a um, comics shop with will eisner and oh, wow. uh, here's a story here he worked alongside uh, bob powell lou fine and mike sikowski which is that's and, and nick carty um, oh wait! I will defend Mike Sikowski to the death, and I know oh, he's yeah. another one who takes all the hits. Yes, oh, I like, I like him too. I like what? Yeah, we like him. But he, so anyway, this is this quote from Will Eisner: "It was a friendly shop, and I guess I was the same age as the youngest guys there. We all got along. The only ones who ever got into a hassle were George Tuska and Bob Powell. Powell was the kind of a wise guy and made remarks about the other people in the shop. One day, George had enough of it, got up and punched out Bob Powell. <laughs> so." George Tuska didn't take a lot of crap, so I think, Shag, if he ever ran into you, he would probably knock you on your ass for being a smartass about his work. Well, if he's born in 1916, I'm not too worried. Well, he's he's no longer (laughs) with us. Don't speak of the dead. Well, I didn't know that. Two more quick, uh, uh, or three more uh, quick things on this issue. One, you'd mentioned the Hawkgirl moment where Marshman Hunter is lying in her her lap. And that actually spans two panels of of Marshman Hunter lying in this woman's lap. And I I love those two panels because... it was clear that Jerry Conway did a lot of research before he did the story because he put more effort into a Martian Manhunter story than pretty much anybody else has ever uh, in terms of his continuity. As a for instance, uh, in his second team up appearance in Brave and the Bold, he, he was paired with the, uh, the Flash. But the Hawkgirl was actually a, a, a secret guest star that turns up late in that story. And then, of course, uh, they met up later on in 1977 when Marshmander got his very uh, short-run uh, solo story. So having that connection there... Considering that they don't spend a lot of time building up connections to the Marshmallow, especially in that era, to have that little bit of a callback, I thought it was really nice. So I had to throw that out there. Uh, second thing, as far as Tusca goes, you know, Star Wars was built on a lot of old serial material. And I'm sure Tusca was aware of that, and I'm sure that Star Wars was an influence on this story. So I found it kind of interesting that you have that scene where the uh, brotherhood, the soldiers of the Red Brotherhood are all together, and they're they're chanting for the marshal. And because they're all dressed sort of like Nazis, and then they also look like World War II-era Asian caricatures. So it's almost like a callback to the serials that influenced Star Wars by guys around during those days. Um, and the final thing, considering I run up. up uh, an Adam blog every now and again, uh, you've got that great center ad that I had to give a shout out to 
it's on cover stock and you open it up and it's like a fairy tale opening to this tale. It's just such a great advertisement to the, for the Atom. And I wish they'd done a little bit more of that in the 80s because I don't know how much effect it had on the Atom. My understanding is that miniseries sold really well sort of the Atom. But uh, uh, I just love that and I wish they'd done that more. And I, and I kind of wish people would do that today. I, it really breaks you out of the comic when you're flipping through a book and then all of a sudden you have this cover stock, this, these uh, really vibrant colors and just text to tell you the story so that you can see it visually later on. Yeah, I'm a, I was a big fan of that series. Um, mentioning your thing about um, Hawkgirl is that uh, Conway gives her more of a personality than she typically had previously. In fact, the point where um, Aquaman insults Red Tornado, Firestorm says something like, you know, what's what's his problem? And uh, Hawkgirl is the one who sympathizes with him. She actually defends Aquaman and says, you know, something like, you know, hey, you know, he's got divided loyalties and he's got a lot on his mind. So I and, and I, I appreciated that. She was always one of my favorite characters. And so I sort of liked that he had her step up. And uh, Well, and you also had all those years of Hawkgirl as the Hawkman apologist, so it makes sense that when Aquaman takes a hard right turn, she'd defend him as well. Sarah's <laughs> always got your back. Well, uh, do we have anything else we want to cover on this particular issue? Uh, I think I'm good. Yeah, no, I think you said it was, I was just saying it was, it was a, you know, a huge setup. And, uh, you know, at the time when I read these, you know, I, I bought these off the stands in 1984 or whatever, you know, you just had to wait a month between issues and it was just like a huge thing. And, you know, at the, I can't, I can't testify to this cause I don't exactly remember, but I, I, I would bet that as a kid, I thought, oh, Conway's just setting us up for the big guys to come in, you know, like this is the first chapter, but clearly, you know, the big, the big guys are going to come in later on in the story, little knowing that, you know them not being in the story was, was part of the story itself. So, um, you know, except, so, so except for, except for the, the, you know, the art, it's a solid beginning to a, you know, really huge story. I'll throw in too, considering that it's Tuska, I think it's pretty nice looking, especially when you compare it to some of the Iron Man stuff that he did. Uh, if he's going to do superheroes, this isn't such a bad way to do superheroes. It just, it kind of doesn't look so hot when compared to the Paul Kupperberg stuff that comes later on. And certainly those Chuck Patton covers. Um, you mean, you mean, so to- you mean Alan Kupperberg? Sorry, Alan Kepperberg. Yes, well, yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> Anyhow, um, the other thing is, um, I don't know, you, you know, you read it when it was coming out. I don't know how major of a story this was to the editors at the time, and I don't know about the readers either, because this is admittedly of the swan swung of the Satellite Arrow Justice League, but it was at a time when the book wasn't selling all that great. It was at a time when they were gearing up toward the next big thing with the Justice League. So you almost get the sense, you know, especially since Patton does the stuff that comes later on, after he'd already made a bit of a splash coming onto the book a few uh, months earlier, you, this is sort of like this leftover, this, this leftover bit of business that they have to take care of before the real shindig starts with the, the, the second annual. Which the JLA so, would go through again right before Legends, of course. And, you know, it's interesting you're, you're talking about whether it's big. I mean, I was reading some of the letters page, and it sounds like the editors did consider this, or at least the build-up to what they were about to do, a big deal. So I, I think they, they really did understand that this story's purpose was to tell why they were going to get to where they were going to be. So I think they considered it a big deal. Okay. I mean, certainly the covers, um, I, for me, these are some of the most striking covers of this era of the JLA. I mean, I'm probably biased because um, it's part of when I started. Rob, I think you and I have talked about we, I know for a fact we talked about that um, Crisis on Earth Prime mm-hmm. and, and had the, that cover treatment. Well, the the third part of this crossover, the cover treatment is very similar uh, with right, the faces. With the heads, yeah. Yeah, with the heads around it. So when I was first buying JLA comics, the first JLA comics I ever bought was the Crisis on Earth Prime. I happened to pick up this comic in the same shopping trip thinking it was part of the crossover. 
<laughs> just because of the cover treatment. And uh, so then I immediately went back and picked up the other one. So these are actually some of the first JLA comics I ever read after Crisis on Earth Prime. And um, I don't know, to me, they're they're huge, and the covers are just awesome. So. I'll back you up on those covers because I didn't read these issues until the late nineties. Uh, you know, I much, you know, I, I, I never read any of this stuff until the late nineties. They didn't have just League of America on the stands where I grew up. You just, they had no presence whatsoever. The only way I knew that these books existed was I'd be buying books like Blue Devil at the local flea market and they would have ads for these books, particularly the first and the last chapters and seeing those covers made me want to read those stories so bad. And I didn't get to read them for another 15 years or so, <laughs> but the desire was always there and you have to figure, that had a lot to do with those covers. They they obviously had a lasting power. Cracks me up that yeah, your your local shop would carry Blue Devil, not Justice League. <laughs> well, no, what it was was I got my stuff at the Seven Eleven, which did not carry Blue Devil either. But the local flea market, somebody must have had a Blue Devil subscription, and they would sell their copies for like twenty cents a pop, and I'd buy them there. So that's, that was my direct market was the local flea market, and Blue Devil is what I, I was in my financial uh, area of to be able to, to collect. Okay. I remember like Secret Wars number one came out, and I think they wanted to be like twelve dollars, which to me might have been might as well have been a hundred. It was like, oh my god, a twelve dollar comic book? How, how? You know, yeah. They gave it the mystique. I'll give it that. Blue <laughs> Devil, the working man's comic. Indeed. Aww. <laughs> All right, folks. Uh, we're going to go ahead and jump right into Justice League of America, number 229, cover dated August 1984. We've got a gorgeous cover of the JLA who have had their butts handed to them, basically. On the satellite, there's this yellow-clad armored being yelling, The war begins now! And uh, he is thoroughly trumped. Aquaman, Black Canary, Green Arrow, Zatanna, Elongated Man, and Firestorm. And... Strangely enough, Aquaman and Zatanna, the perspective on both of them just doesn't quite make sense. Well, I thought that they're floating. Oh, that's good. They're in the satellite, because <laughs> clearly there's a giant hole in the hull. Yeah, so yeah. Dives. Never mind, everything, everything else is just resting on the ground. Well, that's, you know. <laughs> uh, but that, uh, that's very possible. That may have been an attempt to demonstrate zero-G without... Yeah. Remembering to demonstrate the rest of it, right. but uh, either way, it's still I still love it. I think it's a very pretty cover. Chuck Patton and Dick Giordano open this sucker up, and inside you get Jerry Conway on scripts, Alan Kupperberg on pencils, and Pablo Marcos on inks. This is a combination that I'm really happy with. I'll talk about in a little bit. The story starts off uh, in space. Uh, we're following the exploits of a space shuttle. And as is working on a satellite, and suddenly the Martians make their presence known, ladies and gentlemen. They come on in and they zap the living crap out of the space shuttle, uh, thankfully leaving the cockpit section uh, enough to escape. Firestorm and Martian Manhunter zoom to the rescue, and uh, Martian Manhunter has a hard time uh, stopping the shuttle from crashing. But Firestorm hops in there with his atomic restructuring powers and creates a really cool space support. Uh, space shuttle glider that I think every kid wanted a toy of. And Firestorm is convinced that Martian Manhunter was intentionally screwing up the rescue and that because he's a Martian, I mean, come on, he's got to be a traitor, right? So uh, that will be a recurring theme throughout the issue is where Firestorm does not trust M.M. Then we head back uh, and we get to the ground and get some really bizarre commentary from the Hawks, uh, which makes no sense whatsoever. And We'll get to that in a little bit, too. And then we get a great recap by Zatanna. She tells us everything that happened last <laughs> issue. Um, and I mentioned this page because, you know, recaps were just a very commonplace back then in multi, 
uh, issue arcs. But this one uh, is kind of, I like the design of it because it's got the pages kind of sort of in single tone colors behind her and she's in the foreground. And I just think that's a sexy as hell picture of Zatanna. <laughs> Zatanna uh, has the power of exposition. She does. And she's got the power of hotness. So um, this is, I know there's a lot of fishnet people out there, but this is my favorite costume. So. Anyway, uh, the military police show up and try to arrest Martian Manhunter and the Hawks. And this is sort of giving us some echoes of the World War II Japanese internment camps. And Firestorm, for no apparent reason, reverses his position completely and defends Martian Manhunter and the Hawks. Awful nice of him. And that will be the last any sort of political commentary that will ever be involved with Firestorm. Um, not. I don't. I don't think it was such an out of left field reversal though, because basically he was confronted with his own racism and went, "God, that sucks," and then you know became a hero, heroed up. But then he does it again a little bit later. So I mean, well, no, just... no. It, it, with the, in the case of the Martian Manhunter, he's given for us as 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 fans, especially in retrospect, we're like, "Well, of course the Martian Manhunter is a good guy. Of course he's doing the right thing." But for people who hadn't seen Martian Manhunter in fifteen years, there was a, a, a genuine possibility that this guy could be less than he was making himself out to be, and he does a lot of incredibly stupid, dangerous things over the course of the story arc. So, in a lot of ways, I think that Firestorm's criticism was valid, and I do think it became centered on the John Jones himself being a jackass. <laughs> oh, and, and maybe maybe part of his position turned because they were uh, arresting the Hawks as well. I don't know. Maybe he's exactly. more partial to the Hawks, even though he did hang out with Martian Manhunter just twenty eight issues ago. But anyway. Well. I don't know about hanging out. The they kind of slapped him around a little bit. Yeah. You know, I mean, this this just League of America 200, which is one of the only other books that has all of our characters in it, plus some more. The first thing that happens, Marsh Manor shows up out of nowhere and starts beating up the Firestorm for no reason. I'd hold a grudge personally. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. There's that encyclopedic knowledge I was talking about. Jeez. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, then we get to uh, and some nice, a couple nice pages I like of Aquaman just casually having a conversation with the President of the United States of America, uh, which is just awesome. That, who, who, yeah. I, who I think is being uh, played by Clayface. Oh, it does look a little Clayface. It's a spitting it? image, too. Remember that? <laughs> yes, it's I spitting remember image, puppets. spitting image puppet. Yeah. <laughs> He's talking to a spinning image puppet. That's brilliant. Uh, but no, it's Ronald Reagan. And uh, there's some good moments. And, it, you know, they don't address it here. But I like the idea of Aquaman, you know, former king, talking to the president. So, I mean, they are two heads of state having a conversation. They, they could have played that up some more probably. But uh, it, it works really well. And Aquaman starts to think to himself and makes it plainly obvious for the readers at home who exactly is missing from the JLA during this adventure. Uh, then, thank goodness, Elongated Man shows up to save the day. Um, even, even, even Problem Aquaman solved. Is sort of, I know. Even Aquaman's like digging on him. He's like, you know, the, the, the transporter tube energizes, and Aquaman's like, Superman? Oh, hey, what's up? What's up, uh, Elongated Man? Cool. There's like some meatballs downstairs. Go ahead, man. Um, well, and, and there's that not too subtle, say, where's your wife? Don't you think your wife maybe needs some protecting? Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. <laughs> Either that or Aquaman had a thing for Sue. I mean, come on. We all do. I mean, really. Uh, I know I do. But um, – and then Aquaman very somberly volunteers for monitor duty. It's kind of a – I get where it's coming from. It's kind of a, a heavy-handed scene. So Then um, we get some – we get to see the United Nations. They are addressing – or responding, I should say, to the threat of the Martians. And they basically explain that they um, they are – want to respond peacefully, but if the Martians are ready for war, so are they. And Firestorm, being the typical teenager, is like, woohoo, we're going to kick some butt, we're going to war! And the 
cool, more level, mature heads of the rest of the Justice League are upset and bothered because they understand the impact and uh, what a war could do to the planet. It was kind of cool, too, that Elongated Man was the one who starts to bust on Firestorm, because that's sort of a, a pattern that Conway establishes, is if for no other reason Elongated Man is around because he's going to be the one who's going to call somebody on BS. He does that a lot in, in the Detroit. In particular, he had a big conversation with Vibe toward the end of the series um, that I always really liked. So I, I did like <laughs> – Who didn't? That if, huh? <laughs> who didn't have a conversation with well, Vibe? Well, there's that – no, but they, they actually fought. You remember that? They actually got into a fight. Oh, before. I remember it quite well. Yeah, so um, it was just kind of nice because if a long get a man, he suffers from comparison to a lot of other stretchy heroes, but at least he's the one guy who'll break it down, and I like that about him. You know, he'll go, hey, wait, you suck. Where the other guys will be like, no, wait, I'm plastic, man. I can work with anybody. Elong and man is like, you know what? I suck, and I think that you're wrong. That means you're that much worse off by me looking at you badly. Well, I think along it, I mean, not to detract us too much, I think he's a great character because he does, he has that uh, realist side, but he's exactly. also an excellent detective, something most rubbery characters don't have. And he brings the funny, but not always. So he, he's, a, he's a good combination of a lot of things, and he's got that good, solid family life, you know, with Sue. So, all right, so uh, Elongated Man takes Firestorm down a peg, absolutely, and then uh, Aquaman takes some time for a bath. So, <laughs> I have uh, to say, <laughs> I love this two-page spread that uh, Copperberg drew, and I love the moments with uh, the Hawks. I love that when they're together alone in their ship that they don't wear their masks. I just think that's a nice – you know, why would you do that? You know who the, but, the other – what? But again, more ridiculous dialogue. I mean about well, okay. soap operas and crap. Right, it's okay. Ridiculous. But just – Shag, I'm talking. So um, – but I <laughs> – so I, I – and I like all the ships, so I think Copperberg did a great job. My only <laughs> – my only complaint is if you have to show Aquaman refreshing himself with water, I, you really can't just put him in a tub. It just looks very silly. Um, <laughs> they really could have come up with some other visual. Like he could have been floating in like a tube like Luke did in, on Hoth. Just something cooler looking. But he just looks ridiculous sitting in a tub with his shirt on and his gloves. He just looks – it just looks very stupid. So I well, have they, to, try, they, they tried to – Jazz it up by having like rain coming down. Yeah, I know. It's as an Aquaman fan, I have to admit that looks very silly. (laughs) And and then then they show him like leaping out of the bathtub (laughs) as the aliens attack. (laughs) (laughs) No time for the rubber ducky. There's a war going on. Right. So, so the the Martians attack at this point. Uh, They have decided it's time for full scale attack. They start blasting. They blast the living crap out of the satellite. I mean, we're talking like. Uh, Star Wars, Phantom Menace, Episode One, Trade Federation ship breaking apart, kind of explosions. Oh, I'm sorry, I fell asleep. Would you? Did you I, I know it's. Uh, I fell asleep watching it. So, um, so that's pretty dramatic. The satellite takes that kind of damage. Um, then around the world, you see lots of different nations getting ready to, to sh- you know, launch their forces to go attack the Martians. And I love personally how the Soviets have absolutely no time to mince words. Um, literally, invasion. Fire missiles! I mean, that is their entire battle plan. You know, I love that. So you see a lot of a worldwide war kind of going on. And then on board the satellite, who, you know, the, the survivors on the satellite are still just, you know, either knocked unconscious or just rattled or whatever. In comes another ship, and in steps in this person from the cover, this yellow armor-clad person uh, called the Challenger, who we saw last issue. So he's supposed to be this really awesome, you know, Martian who's going to kick butt. Aquaman comes flying at him and tries to hurt him. Yay. And he, well, I'm sorry. He treats Aquaman like a chump. He, he picks Aquaman up, throws him against the wall, 
And then it gets taken out by a single arrow from Green Arrow. <laughs> what is up with that? Aquaman, who can, you know, insanely powerful strength, can, you know, lift a building or lift a lift a truck without any problem at all, you know, all this stuff, and an arrow took the guy out? It One must, arrow to the back? That must have been Ollie's uh, Martian arrow. <laughs> it's, it's actually called the Wall Smasher arrow. But anyway, it's just bizarre. Uh, so then uh, we get some exposition on the Martian ship where we find out that the Marshal's girlfriend, her name is Belle Jews, is actually secretly sort of the hand behind all this. She's been manipulating the whole thing since the start, and she's kind of, you know, she's the, she's the, I don't know, the power behind the throne to some extent with the Marshal. So she's bad mojo as well. And she's got some history with uh, Martian Manhunter as well. So Firestorm now is, uh, they've all kind of gotten up, and Firestorm suspects that something's still screwed with Martian Manhunter. So he goes looking for Martian Manhunter, finds some Martians, blasts them, comes across Martian Manhunter putting on a, uh, a suit of some sort, like a spacesuit. Martian Manhunter, once again, loving the fists, slugs Firestorm. Uh, he makes a habit of that throughout this whole crossover. He's like, hmm, I don't think I have time for this conversation. Um, <laughs> So he, he punches Firestorm, he gets in a shuttle, um, which would have made an awesome toy, by the way, and blasts his way out of the space station, and oh, they're losing air! So the space station starts, all the air starts rushing out, and it says, to be concluded. Now, I'm kind of surprised there's still air inside the space station after it got broken apart earlier, but whatever. And that is that issue in a nutshell. Begin discussion. <laughs> well, it, it, for starters, there's that ending there. He punches Firestorm, hops into a ship, and blasts through the ship, uh, basically compromising the lives of everybody on board for no apparent reason, especially once you get to the next chapter beyond leaving this one on a cliffhanger. That's kind of a jerky thing to do. It's no wonder Firestorm was kind of taking a jaundice view of John Jones. Well, he's a douche. <laughs> yeah, he was a douche in this issue. It's true. Uh, I got I to gotta talk about the art real quick. First of all, obviously, it's a it's a... It's a, it's a big relief after the George Tusk issues. And for me personally, Alan Kupperberg and Pablo Marcos is a great combination. I really enjoy them. Alan Kupperberg drew a number of Blue Devil issues uh, after um, – uh, uh, gosh, the name is totally escaping me. He's – woo, blanking out. After you talking the, about Paris Thank you. Totally yeah. lost that. Couldn't get it back. Thank God I, Frank was here. I know. Well, uh, after Paris Collins left Blue Devil, Alan Kupperberg eventually became the full-time artist. So I, I, I was born and bred here, you know, on Alan Kupperberg artwork. And then Pablo Marcos inked the very first issue of Blue Devil, which was, as we said, done by Paris Collins. So it's almost like a good blending of, of Blue Devil worldness in this issue. So it just made it made my heart sore. It was a good transition out of Tusca too, because Kupperberg has these kind of big, thick, blocky characters. So it, even though it, was a, it seemed like a much uh, a prettier uh, version of Tusca to some degree, it, didn't, it wasn't as, as shocking a change as it would have been if, say, Chuck Patton had come back. I like that as well. Hmm. Yeah, it looks nice. It's, I mean, uh, I've seen Kupperberg stuff and other things, and he can get a little, uh, little like, just for, for my opinion, like a little too loose, a little mm-hmm. too cartoony. And I think Pablo Marcus is like a good anchor for him because it kind of reined him in a little and smoothed it out. So that's yeah, give him a really nice sheen. Yeah, that's yeah. a good that's a good word for it. So yeah, I think that's a it's a good combination, and <laughs> it it does kind of give the series a bit of a thrown together feel that you've got a completely different art team on <laughs> on the second chapter from the first. But luckily they came back, or at least Coverbird came back for the the third one. So um, yeah, I enjoyed this one. I mean, it's you know it's you're 
seeing uh, Aquaman have feelings that they haven't ever shown before. Um, it is a little silly for him to be uh, mad at the other JLAers for not showing up, considering there would be long stretches where he didn't show up. Um, <laughs> you know, missing missing adventures to attend the Atlantean Festival of Lights and things like that. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's a little like, well, who are you? You know, you're not here all that much. In fact, during the Denny O'Neill years, he didn't show up at all. Um, so... Uh, it's a, it's a little looking back on it. It's a little ham handed, you know, that it's like, Oh, all of a sudden Aquaman is so upset about this, but you know, Hey, it's, a, I was, I was happy to see him take such a, a big, a big lead in, in such a big story. So. And that was a good little bit of that characterization, I think, too, because they, they addressed that in the Detroit issues, that hypocrisy. You know, he was the first member to bail on the Detroit league and it was for the exact same reasons you're talking about. You know, he, 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 Dove into that team because his marriage was on the rocks. He was no longer a king anymore. His son was gone. And then at the first chance of reconciliation with Mira, he's out the door. So they did kind of address that he was well, he was projecting a lot. Let's be realistic. I mean, if a redhead like that showed up. When a man, boy, yeah, given. When a man loves a woman, you know. <laughs> I'll tell you, if my, if my redheaded wife comes home early today, guys, I'm getting off the podcast. So, I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> Let's hurry up and finish this up then. Uh, one more thing I wanted to get in there too with the thing about Aquaman being in the bathtub I know that most (laughs) so I had to come back to this I understand that most of the Justice League's physiology means that they have to go to the bathroom and and chuck deuce but I don't need to see that I'm aware of it sometimes I think with Aquaman they overthink things it's like yes I'm sure Aquaman needs to replenish himself yes he probably goes to the bathtub or into the uh, Empire Strikes Back you know, Luke Skywalker, you know, tube thingy. But I don't need to actually see that, you know. And I think that's an instance of just overthinking. So I, I just yeah, have to throw that I, out there, too. I agree. The, I agree. <laughs> at this point in time, wasn't he wearing that suit that recirculated water through itself to replenish his body anyway? I think they, they mentioned that in the Detroit issues. I don't think they mentioned yeah. it to this point. But, yeah, I mean, I, Frank's right. It's Everyone knows, you know, when you're not – basically, if you're not seeing him on panel, he's chugging down a, a bottle of water. So <laughs> – <laughs> He's a heavy investor in Zephyr Hills. Yeah, um, so. I, I I gotta go back to this hawk dialogue in this thing. I mean the the hawks are so weird in this issue. Like they show up after say, Firestorm and Marshman are show up after saving the space shuttle. You know, and, and Hawk Girl's like, "You made it, and you didn't need our help after all." And Hawkman's like, "Still, I'm glad uh, we three were waiting for what." What the hell? What? Why were you glad you were waiting? You know, you could be out helping the world, <laughs> but no, thank goodness you're here at the military base. But don't it, think that bit about Carter Hall watching soap operas. What in the hell was that about? Yeah, I know. I mean, they're in the middle of the. They're getting ready to have a war. You know, Aquaman's taking time for a bath, and he's talking about soap operas. Like, what the heck? Where did that page come from? <laughs> now, more importantly, let's get back to how hot Zatanna was. Um, seriously, <laughs> like this page here, page eight. I mean, she's just smoking. And maybe it's because she looks here just like she did when she would appear in the Blue Devil issues. Maybe that's part of where. Yes. Oh, man, that two-parter early in the in, in the first year. Uh-huh. Like she's four and five. I've had a crush on her ever since then. Mm-hmm. Now, those, interestingly enough, those were drawn by Paris Collins, not Alan Cooperberg. But, I mean, it's just, it's all right there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. He has visible loins. I am sure that had a lot to do with a, a prepubescent mind focusing in on that particular character. <laughs> she's uh, she's got my attention, even if she is wearing a bug in her head. <laughs> Anyways, but you know the Hawks' ridiculous dialogue continues. They're just going on like you know we're guests on this world, but we want you to know we'll be here by your side till the end. We'll fight and we'll win. You know, I realize that's sort of a setup later to remind us they're aliens, but at the same time, it's sort of like we don't really belong here, and we might take off if it gets loose. <laughs> <laughs> 
what makes sure we're clear? <laughs> if things get a little hairy, we do have a vacation home back on Thanagar that we could go back exactly. to. Exactly. So that's all I got on this one. <laughs> so, uh, okay, well, so that, uh, that is the conclusion number 229. So we have uh, one more issue in this Titanic War, the world's three-parter. Uh, we're going to cover that when we come back. Uh, we're going to take a little break right now. And I hope you hope everybody enjoys uh, this message from another expert on Mars, Orson Welles. I'm, of course, surprised that the H.G. Wells classic, which is the original for many fantasies about invasions by mythical monsters from the planet Mars, I'm extremely surprised to learn that a story which has become familiar to children through the medium of comic strips and uh, many succeeding novels and adventure stories should have had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. <laughs> really? It wasn't even that good. No, no, we're keeping this. Uh, Shag just gave me a funny countdown. Uh, anyway, we're, we're back. Thank you so much for uh, coming back uh, to part two of the show. We hope you enjoyed that little message from Orson Welles. I know I did. Um, so we're now up to part three of the uh, War of the Worlds 1984 storyline, and which is uh, Justice League number 230. And uh, Frank, why don't you give us, uh, give us the scoop on that issue? No. No, now that we've got your re- uh, listeners on the hook, I'm going to talk to them about Marsh Manor for a few minutes. Oh. It's all part of my grand scheme. Okay, well, that's great. I have to go run some errands, so I'm going to go do that. <laughs> and then uh, by the time I come back, hopefully you'll be done. Yes, indeed. Okay, uh, a lot of people, I, I'm assuming the people who listen to this podcast know a lot about Aquaman, know a lot about Firestorm. You may not know a lot about the Martian Manhunter, and I'm sure that there, you know, there's some familiarity from the cartoons, but I wanted to give you a little bit of backstory because it's important to know what War of the Worlds 1984 meant to the character. Um, John Jones, Man from Mars, created in 1955, but it was a, it was a sci-fi uh, uh, crime strip. As we talked about before, crime was big in the 1950s. Sci-fi was never as big as people seem to think it was in comics, but it was still worth noting, and they were doing a lot of comics at that time, trying to exploit the seeming appeal that, you know, hoping for crossover appeal with the sci-fi movies of the time. So for the early years, it was basically a plain clothes detective solving fairly mundane crimes using secret Martian powers. It wasn't until around 1959 that he actually began to take on the affectations of a superhero, and that was because Julius Schwartz had become uh, uh, known for bringing back the superhero. He had brought back the Flash, Green Lantern, and it was progressing from there. And so looking to bring back the Justice Society, we had the Justice League. And at the time, Mort Weisinger was very possessive of Superman, and editor Jack Schiff was very possessive of Batman. So even though people like to talk about the Magnificent Seven, really the Justice League was five heroes. Martian Manhunter, Aquaman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern. And the Martian Manhunter was in that Superman role. And when you think about how many teams were formed off the template, established by the Justice League, the Martian Man was one of your first strong guys. He was your Superman guy who, you know, you could rely upon if nobody else could to save the day. Um, so that really it, uh, made him more conscious in the readers' minds. I think that he would have been very much a footnote in history had it not been for him being two-horned in the Justice League for another reason than he had a lot of powers and could stand in for Superman. But 
eventually Superman and Batman did join the Justice League, and for that reason, Marshman had was slowly pushed out of the book. Marshman had also been in Detective Comics for a number of years without really significantly affecting the sales. At that time, Batman was kind of the bottom rung of the headlining DC heroes. He really wasn't selling well at all. Um, so he decided, well, you know, if Julius Schwartz is doing such great things with the superhero revival, let's give him the Batman books. They did that, and Marsh Manor was shown the door. So around 1964, the Marsh Manor is already getting pushed out of the Justice League, um, and now he's in a new anthology title, House of Mystery. But in retrospect, that was very much a stopgap measure, because even though he got a few covers out of the deal and he was a headlining hero, he almost immediately lost that cover slot to the new feature, Dialage for Hero, which I think is where they were putting most of, of their eggs. You know, that was the basket in which they were putting most of their eggs. Hold, hold on one sec. He was in House yeah. of Mystery? He was. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Was he introduced by Kane or Abel or anything like that? Or? That, was, that was the thing is, is House of Mystery, when it started, it was DC's watered-down, kid-friendly version of the type of stuff that EC was doing. Right. But after all the Wortham business, all the horror got shut down. So they were basically doing silly sci-fi type stuff with it, maybe a little bit of bug-eyed monster type stuff. But there weren't any Kane and Abel. That wouldn't come in until the 70s. In fact, Kane and Abel were the guys who evicted the Martian Manhunter and Dial H for Hero from the book. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, anyhow, the Marshman Hunter strip, as I mentioned before, started out as sci-fi crime, progressed into superhero, when that wasn't really working. And because House of Mystery already had an established format, they kind of created, recreated the strip for this new book. So the Marshman Hunter was always a Marshman Hunter. He had his sidekick, Zook, who would help him with adventures. And he had this device called the Diablo Idlehead, which I derived my, my blog's name. And what, it was basically Pandora's box. Once a month on a full moon, it would open up and a new monster would come out. And Zook and the Marshman Hunter would go and beat up the monster, wash, winch, repeat. You know, that was the, the series. Well, about halfway through the series, that wasn't really working out, and Dialation already come out, and that wasn't really lighting anything on fire. So I decided, okay, instead of having these kid-friendly type stories, we'll make it a little more hard-edged. Spies are in. So Zook went away. Marshman had to take on a new superhero, a uh, new human identity of Marco Xavier, and he's trying to infiltrate the international crime organization called Vulture and bring down their leader, Mr. V. And the second half of the run was that material. <laughs> yeah. Well, as you can see, he's already gone through a ton of format changes. Frank, Nothing has really worked so far. Frank, you are blown by way too much good stuff here. I'm sorry. You've got to take a breath every so often so we can mock it. Please. I mean, my God, you, you have got to come back now just so we can cover all this ridiculous stuff. <laughs> you Vulture? Well, you want me to restart? <laughs> no, we're fine, but Vulture? Really? Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> He was man from Uncle too, huh? That's Basically, well, see, that's the thing is, people always think that they, he was a spy. He was a spy, but he wasn't like a super spy. A government agent named Mister Steele actually asked him to infiltrate the organization. But the organization, it was just like a mafia. It was an international mafia. There wasn't which had gadgets. Actually, I'm full of it. It, it was a spy agency. They just didn't have an acronym. Everybody thinks it's V dot U dot so forth. No, it's just Vulture. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, you have to probably chop around a little bit on there because I've okay. <laughs> Are you sure you don't want me to start again? No, no, nah. no, 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 no. You okay. don't. We don't edit this thing. Are you kidding? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, uh, let me jump back in again. Okay, so none of these format changes had worked out very well. So by 68, they kind of gave up on it. The, the Comic Code Authority had loosened its restrictions on horror material. So Jack Schiff was quietly retired from DC as a whole. House of Mystery was taken over by Joel Orlando. That's when Kane and Abel and all the more serious horror stuff came in, all that great Neil Adams stuff and so forth. And 
Dolly for Hero and John Jones were shown the door. Meanwhile, John Jones was no longer showing up in Justice League either because you had Superman. Why do you need this guy, Marshman Hunter? Especially because for some reason, Gardner Fox fixated on one power. The Marshman Hunter had super wind. He would just blow everything down or out. And it was <laughs> Wait, let's go back to Super Wind. I like that description. Like, yeah, no, it's it's a bunch of beings before each adventure. All right, hold on. Wait, I have to pause the show and say, I think anyone who's listening to this, raise your hand if you just want us to skip JLA number 230 entirely and just have Frank talk about the ridiculous history of the Martian <laughs> Oh, that's ours. We don't have time for that. We've, that's a multi-installment serial. I, the Martian career is so bizarre. Shag, I don't know about you, but I think I, I think I can, uh, I, I can imagine a, another podcast we might have to start. <laughs> I gotta say, I'm not feeling so bad about all the changes Firestorm's gone through over the format changes over the years. Now, I always thought he took it pretty hard on the chin, but man, he's a, he's an amateur. <laughs> Uh, okay. Whew. Deep breath. Okay. Yeah, breathe. So what was Man. interesting about all of these changes that Marshman had gone through is his original co-creator, Joe Samuelson, had left within the first few months of the script, but new writer Jack Miller and the original artist Joe Serta did the script for 13 years, almost 13 years straight, you, uh, discounting the part that, that Samuelson had done. So you have the same creative team, and they're not necessarily the most adept or commercially sound creative team. So... They never changed the creative team, but they changed the format over and over and over again, and nothing worked. And nobody ever thought, well, maybe, you know, I don't know if they if they just wanted to. It was talked about the judge, uh, the George Triscuit thing. Maybe it was just a matter of giving these guys work. Maybe the Marsh Manor's entire career comes down to helping Jack Miller and Joe Soto pay the rent every month. I, I kind of wonder about that. Anyhow, uh, so '68, they're both. Out of work. Joe Sutter goes off and he does a bunch of work for Dell. Uh, Jack Miller kind of bounced around for a little bit. And then I think he ended up passing on in the 70s, if I recall correctly. Um, 69, Denny O'Neill goes ahead and writes the Marshman out of the Justice League after he'd already been summarily dropped without any explanation. People kept writing in and asking. So he's like, fine, I'll tell you what happened to the Marshman He goes off to Mars. Mars has been blown up by a, a new heretofore never mentioned nemesis named Commander Blanks. By the way, there's also racial warfare that we've never brought up before on this planet against the Greens and the Whites. So with Mars gone, uh, the Marshman Hunter is sent off to find his people who – there's a small rocket ship. They loaded him up with as many Martians as they could, and the Ark went off to the stars, and Marshman Hunter basically is leaving to go find his people. And they left that cliffhanger hanging for about three or four years. And then when they finally resolved it – they had a new planet, Mars 2. The Marshman was going to be the leader of the planet. And goodbye, Marshman Hunter, for the next decade and a half. We're done with you. We're tired of you. You haven't worked out. You're gone. Um, can, can, they, we, can we officially call it Mars 2 Electric Boogaloo? Is that, is that okay? <laughs> I prefer Mars 2 The Quickening. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was more like Mars 2 Suck Harder, honestly. Martian <laughs> awful. Martians are the worst alien race. Uh, if you go back to the original stories, think about it. Most alien races, they come to Earth, and they've got these great big spaceships, and they're coming to conquer us, and we're a bunch of monkeys running around. That's not what happens with Mars. What happens with Mars is that one Martian gets drawn to Earth by the superior Earthling technology through teleportation. He lands here, and he's like, oh, dang. Martians don't have rocket ships. I'm going to be here for a while. He doesn't try to reverse it. He talks about maybe he'll try to reverse it. He, he doesn't work that out for years. The Martians never get their rocket ships together. They never come to pick him up. They only manage to build that one rocket ship that they loaded everybody up on to shoot off to the stars. These guys have terrible technology. And, and another thing is 
the Martian Hunter joins the Justice League and thanks to this retroactive uh, continuity, why doesn't the Martian Hunter gather the Justice League and go and beat Commander Blanks and stop Mars from getting blown up? The answer is that Martian Hunter got off that stinking rock. He had no desire to go back, and he just wanted to kind of leave them to fend for themselves because they're just a terrible people. They're jerks, uh, as we'll find in the 1970s. These guys go to Mars too, right? Well, it's a rock. Now, Martians come to Earth, they get all these cool powers. Martians on Mars really don't have powers, and then Martians on other planets have greatly diminished powers. So obviously the thing to do is, well, you go to Earth, it's the next planet over. you got a rocket ship, point it at Earth. But these guys don't have the sense to do that. Though they shoot off to another solar system. They land on this rock. There's nothing on this rock. It's just nothing but rock. And so what the Martians do is they don't build up this rock. It stays a rock the entire time Mars to exist. One of the points of the story that we're reading is that it's a rock 15 years later. They haven't done anything with it. And then they finally decide, let's go to Earth and conquer it instead of doing something with this rock. And they never had any advanced technology, so what happens is they devolve into barbarism. They're running around with swords, fighting each other with swords. When they finally find inhabitants to the planet, what do they do? They decide to try to kill the inhabitants and take their stuff. One of the problems I have with the story arc is where did these guys get the ships? They had one ship. They couldn't build anything. Martians are terrible, terrible characters. They're terrible aliens. They're inferior to humans. And the whole thing with the, the Martian technology that was supposed to jazz the watchtower, I'm pretty sure Martian Manhunter just claimed Erdell's technology and said, yeah, it's Martian. <laughs> I don't think you can do that stuff. So, yeah, they're, they're a completely bogus race. Are you, um, are you on the verge of, like, hyperventilating or something? <laughs> I don't think you breathe through that whole thing, brother. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, anyhow, point, getting back on to the point, though. Okay, what was this show again. about? What, did, what, did, what are we talking I about? I think we were talking about Green Arrow or something. Okay. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> okay. Throughout the 1970s, the Marshall Manhunter made only a handful of appearances. You could probably count them on your fingers, maybe a few toes. And each time he made an appearance, there were certain uh, consistencies. One is that he would usually be disoriented in some way because he just had his ass handed to him. <laughs> so he shows up and he wanders around and some other hero finds him. And he's like, oh, help me, other heroes. And so the other heroes would go and they'd beat the guy who beat up the Martian Manhunter. And the Martian Manhunter would say thank you and then go back to misleading the Martian people on Mars too. N- he couldn't solve any of his own problems. He was consistently mentally unbalanced, physically weakened usually. You know, even in the start of this story arc, what happens is he lands and he's, he's supposed to be, you know, starving and he hasn't slept for days and that's why he's running around and hitting everybody. So that's very consistent with what he'd done throughout the 1970s. He runs up to guys and he says, hey, help me. And then they help him and then the heroes go away because they've got better things to do than hang out on Mars too, unlike John Jones. Uh, he had that serial in 1977. All he did was running around, hit other superheroes, and in the end you find out that he'd been misled by one of his fellow Martians. So he's just a jerk. He's a jerk and he's a nimrod, and that's where we pick up with him in the 1980s. And one of the reasons why I'm telling you guys all this, and I'm sorry for, for belaboring the point, but there were two writers that would have potentially saved Martian Manhunter from becoming, you know, uh, uh, again, once again, a footnote in comic book history. One of those writers is Jerry Conway. In, uh, there we go, getting in there. In 1984, they were planning a miniseries that was going to feature the Martian Manhunter as a supporting character. They were going to come up with a new, younger, leaner Martian who was going to have his own series. John was just going to be a supporting player, and they were going to play with a lot of the continuity that had been established by Denny O'Neill and other writers from the 60s through the 70s. All that bad material that I just talked about. Well, Jerry Conway 
in the midst of that miniseries, decided, well, you know what? I want to use the Marsh Manor for some stuff. So he basically blocked the use of the Martians for this specific story arc. And that's what prevented Jim, son of Saturn, from being Jim, son of Mars, and Marsh Manor being consigned to being a, a supporting character in Jim's book. Oh, uh, wow. I had no so, idea. Indeed, indeed. And actually, yeah. it's funny because like, there are only two people who know anything about Martian continuity besides me, apparently. Jerry Conway and Greg Potter, the writer of the Jim miniseries. And all that stuff ends up in the Jim miniseries. And it's not necessarily great material. It's an extremely depressing, jacked-up series with another weak protagonist. So I don't think that series would have helped the Marshman Hunter's case any. So to a large degree, Jerry Conway saved him from the fate that would have been Jim, son of Saturn. Or Jim, son of Mars, I should say. Hmm. Now, what you've got in this book is he he actually goes to the trouble of reading those older Daniel O'Neill stories. The Marshal, the main villain of this piece, is kind of a reconfiguration of Commander Blanks. He's definitely a callback to that character. Beljuz, who had appeared in one story, goes from being a one-story villainous to a, a supporting character and and giving validity to those stories. Plus, I think Beljuz is hot, and I just wish they hadn't tried to color her like Jarella in this story, because she's actually got this really lovely lavender hair. Um, it's just an extremely important story for John Jones, and it's all because of Jerry Conway, because you, like, if you open each of these issues, most of the issues start with a superpowers ad in the inside front cover. And how many people do you know who became familiar with the Marsh Manor through the Superpowers toy. And the only reason he got that toy is by joining the Justice League around this time period. That would have happened otherwise. So right there, that in and of itself, there's your gateway to Marsh Manor fandom from the 80s onward. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> I think saying Martian Manhunter fandom, though, implies um, yeah, more, I know. more than two guys. <laughs> so I don't know that that's really fair. Yeah. But anyway. It's true. This is true you speak. Okay, now that I've bored everybody, let's get to the issue at hand. I found all that fascinating, personally. Okay. Uh, yeah, Frank, I should say, I didn't find that boring. I just more like, I actually would love to learn more about it. I want to hear I want to hear about Maxwell Xavier. And I want to hear about the Marcus super Xavier. wind and all that other kind of stuff. But I guess it's for another show. <laughs> another time, fellas, another time. Okay. So the Marsh Manor, we were just talking about how Firestorm had no reason to distrust the Marsh Manor. Not so much. The Marsh Manor blew out of the Justice League satellite that the Martians had just destroyed. And I'd just like to say, at least that's one thing the Martians accomplished. They were the first ones to blow up the satellite. And they kept blowing it up throughout Crisis. And even later on in this series, they blew it up some more. But the Martians blew it up first. So at least they've got that going for them. <laughs> they accomplished something. <laughs> right. So Martian Manor gets into this space suit. He gets into his spaceship. But for some reason, he can't, like, work the pod pay doors or something or do something that won't imperil his entire team. He smashes through the wall of the satellite in the spaceship, and then he proceeds to go directly to the marshal's command ship and get blown to pieces. Well, so, he, he also manages to get by 20 other Martian ships without a scratch. There is that, but the <laughs> problem is what – he's killed the Justice League as far as he knows. They even make that clear in the dialogue. I think I just killed the Justice League. And then he goes to a command ship, and then he gets blown up. What was this person expecting to accomplish? <laughs> but John Jones just did not think in these times. He just hit people and hit things, and it's all apparent here, as, as we'll come back to. So the, the Justice League, as far as everybody knows at this point, is dead. The Marshal and Bell Jews are already, like, writing his eulogy. And the, the girlfriend that was mentioned before, Jen, which, by the way, is the first confirmed incontinuity girlfriend the Marshman had ever had. And this is, what, about 30 years into the character's history so far? 
He had a brief flirtation with patrolwoman Diane Mead, and there was some insinuation that Bell Jews might have been a former lover of his, but that was never made explicit. Um, so Bell, so Jen is the first girlfriend, and she's trying to kill him repeatedly. But thankfully, this second death of John Jones, after she thought she'd personally helped to kill him initially, finally made her think, maybe this martial guy is kind of a jerk. And she starts rethinking herself. Meanwhile, on Earth, assuming that the Justice League has been killed, you've got uh, the Secretary of the United Nations has this great line where he's talking about all the casualties that Earth is taking. And then he points out, not one Martian fighter craft has been destroyed. And he does it with this furrowed brow and this intense look where you're like, oh, dang, this is going to be some serious stuff. Then you got USSR General Secretary Konstantin Chernenko. Chernenko? Chernenko? How do you pronounce that? You know? Anyhow. Um, he's talking to Ronald Reagan, and he's like, okay, let's just go ahead and hit the button. Let's just do this. We're all going to die. Let's just take these guys out. And Reagan, which I love, Reagan is the voice of reason. He's the calm, reserved one. It's like, eh, let's just wait it out. Give me a couple more hours, okay? And then we'll blow up the entire planet in a nuclear winter. Just a little bit more time. <laughs> well, the Martians go to the satellite. They're checking to see, make sure these guys are all dead. And I love this so much. Black Canary jumps down, and she's got a spacesuit on that happens to have the fishnet netting on top of the legs of the spaceship. <laughs> so awesome. When, you, when I was reading Justice, the Alex Ross miniseries from a few years ago, and he did all those you know, armored versions of the Justice League, I wasn't that impressed because none of them had fishnet on top of their space armor. And if they'd just done a little bit more stuff like that, a little more ridiculous stuff like that, that series would have been twice as awesome, easily. So... <laughs> To demonstrate how awful and how useless Martians are, I've, I've mentioned that their power levels change depending on where they're at. These guys are coming in in armor, they've got guns, and what happens? Black Canary, a normal human being, karate kicks them to death. <laughs> That's how awful the Martians are, okay? Then you have Jin. Jin uh, realizes, you know, again, that the Martians are dick, so she draws her gun and she shoots down three Martians and steals one of their ships. Because again, the Martians are useless. Then there's a whole bunch of Martian ships that are talking about how they just killed Hawkman and Hawkwoman, which, was that even in the previous issue? Did they show them blowing up the Thanagarian, their Thanagarian ship? No, they were busy watching Young and the Restless. Exactly. So they're all talk congratulating themselves for completely uh, evaporating the, the Thanagarian ship, and they don't realize, wait, there's no debris, right? So the, Mar the, the Thanagarian ship comes out of nowhere and starts blowing up all the Martian ships. And it's not a situation where they just zap one. They zap, like, three of them in one blast. <laughs> and just to, just to make sure that you get it, too. Then they have this long conversation about how, hey, wait a second, the Martians suck. They actually have that conversation in the comic book. I thought these guys were kind of badass, but they really suck. Let's go blow them up because they're pretty useless. And then that's what happens throughout the rest of the issue because the next thing you see is the elongated man is taking out a troop of Martians. He becomes a rubber band, and he takes out a troop of Martians. <laughs> they're kind of like the Three Stooge Martians. Three Stooge uh, Martians. Well, no, it's always like three of them, and they're always getting and whacked, and then they're gone. You know, it only takes like one hit. Zatanna. One of the things that was so frustrating, especially in the Detroit years, is Zatanna is such an incredibly powerful character, and they always find a way to take her out really quickly. It's like the early Justice League episodes where Superman magically gets knocked out so the rest of the team has something to do. So even Zatanna gets to blow away a bunch of Martians. When Zatanna's getting action, you know you're screwed. You know, <laughs> it, like, you guys are just the worst invaders ever. So then everybody realizes, hey, wait a second, where did Firestorm go? Which I love that. <laughs> Oh, yeah, we forgot about that guy who's on our team. Because they've already grouped up and are working on Red Tornado. Because, again, love, love, love this. I, I call uh, Red Tornado 
Red Tornado the Usurper on my blog. Because what happened is so they got rid of the Martian Manhunter, and then they immediately get a character that's somewhat similar, has a similar color, similar cape, similar manner to him, except he's even more awful than a Martian Manhunter. I love that in the story arc, and it's not like this is an uncommon occurrence because we all know how horrible the Red Tornado is as a character. But I love how, as bad as it is that Aquaman kind of gets owned a little bit by Challenger and then Green Arrow manages to knock him out with one arrow, Red Tornado gets knocked out by the Challenger off panel. You don't even get to see him get combusted. And it's not like it is in the modern era where you see all these bits and pieces flying all over the place. He just sort of goes, eh, his like motherboard cracks or something, and he just <laughs> falls down, and he's, he's done. And so they're all hovering around him trying to fix Red Tornado because obviously he's going to be really helpful in this struggle against the stinking Martians that Black Canary's beating up. And everybody forgets about poor Firestorm. It's just such a sad statement that, oh, let's all help Red Tornado. And then Firestorm has apparently been enough of a jerk over the past few years that he's been a member that they kind of go, oh, yeah, that guy. Uh. <laughs> and Probably, then you know, the, the single most powerful member of the Justice League gets treated like shit. That's fair. Hey, oh, sorry. I bleep it out. <laughs> and, of course, Ronnie being Ronnie, the first thing he does is realize, oh, if I'm not dead, I'm the sole survivor, clearly. I- I'm not even going to check to see if the other Justice League members are alive. I'm not going to see if I can help them in any way in case they're still, like, in a closet somewhere that has a little pocket of air. I'm just going to go run off and avenge them, which is, to my thinking, a very Firestorm kind of moment. Mm-hmm. So in the meantime, John Jones' ship, he'd been blown up. He's somehow blown clear of the wreckage and rescued by Jen, which shows his poor planning. It kind of shows some poor planning in terms of the plot. Um, but Jen saves him, and then immediately is like thinking that you know this guy who just made a kamikaze suicide run is going to change his ways and not go up against the Martians as they're conquering Earth, even though that's all he's been doing for the entire story arc. And so she pulls a gun on him, and again – the Justice League has been killed as far as John Jones is concerned, and he still, instead of just slapping this chick and taking her gun, has this moment where he, he, he tests her faith, and she starts crying, and she drops the gun. And it's like, why would you chance that? I realize you guys were boyfriend and girlfriend, but she's already tried to kill you repeatedly. She's already been taken in by the marshal, and now you're going to chance Earth's survival on whether or not she's willing to pull a trigger on you. She's willing to pull a trigger on you. You got lucky. Well, I, I take it the other side, is that she pulls the gun on him, and he says, you know, basically gives her a choice. The only options you have are let me go or kill me. And it's like, I'm sitting there looking at him, I'm like, no, just shoot him in the friggin' knee. <laughs> you know, blam! <laughs> Where are you going now? You know? But, anyway. Well, instead of that, the Martian Manhunter infiltrates the, the Marshall's ship. It's really hard to say Martian Manhunter and Marshall, I gotta say. That's, it, it, the sibling nest really starts to come out, for starters. Um... He gets onto the ship just as the marshal is broadcasting to the entire fleet about how they're all going to cave in and blow up the earth. And said, John John's like, come on, bring it. And so the marshal brings it. He doesn't bring it strong. There's one panel in particular where they're supposed to color him as turning invisible. And instead they have to sell it in the dialogue because the colorless color is screwed up. Um, the Marshal has a cheat, and he's supposed to be this genetically engineered super Martian, but all Martians suck, and at least the Martian Manhunter has been on Earth where he's been around competent heroes, so apparently he's learned a few tricks. And despite the glorious, glorious Chuck Patton, Dick Jordan, no cover, the Marshal kind of goes down. Like a, I, I can't say the curse word, but he, we'll say wimp. He goes down like a little wimp. Um, and so Belju's grabs a gun, is going to try to blow him away. Firestorm has his, his moment where he zaps the gun and turns it into nothing. You know, Marsh, I thought that was Firestorm's thing. Didn't he, isn't he supposed to turn stuff into stuff? Well, he can turn it into air, too, or just a lump of plastic. 
maybe yeah. he did that. We, we don't actually see specifically. He may have just vaporized it or he may have turned it into something. Yeah, he should have turned it into something. It's kind of lame. It just sort of like goes bye-bye. So he's, he's pissed right now, though. Yeah. Well, Firestorm saves the day. Uh, well, he saves John Jones anyway. And Reagan calls off the nukes and everything's fine except that the Martians hold a grudge. They're like, you know what, Martian Manhunter – we appreciate that you stopped us from invading this other planet, and we realize that you guys have pointed out that we suck as a species and we can't beat you because we can't take on, uh, you know, Black Canary, Green Arrow, and Red Tornado. So what chance have we got when Superman and Wonder Woman finally show up? Hell, Batman and the Outsiders at this point would have been, oh, oh. <laughs> so they leave Earth, but they leave John Jones behind because they don't like the reminder that they suck being amongst them. Plus, let's face it, he's been leading them, and he led them to the point where they had a military coup and threw him, you know, and tried to kill him. So probably not going to be the best place for him anyway. And that's the note that we end on. Well, Frank, I <laughs> undercut our... Are alleging that this is a great series. <laughs> I don't think uh, we're really going to be spiking the sales of these back issues anytime soon. <laughs> well, it's not like this thing's getting collected in a trade paperback. So I it sh- totally should be. It totally should be. I know that I've mocked it, but you have to understand, it's like a B movie. You know, when you think about it, even Star Wars, which this obviously parallels, is something of a B movie. You enjoy pointing out its problems and its plot holes, but you also enjoy watching the plot holes as they unfold. You enjoy the wackiness. You enjoy, you know, there's still enough on the screen, on the page to keep your attention. You know, like I said, I never saw any of these flaws. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I didn't realize what chumps the Martians were until you started talking about them. Like, yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense. No, it doesn't. I mean, and, and. Watching this, re- re- listening to you talk about this and, and reading this over, I realize I don't understand Aquaman is being so upset that uh, this team wasn't sufficient. I mean, they seem to handle it pretty well. I mean, Black Canary was taking out Martians three at a time. Well, right, we've exactly. got the, the wall banger arrow. That's clearly all you need. I mean, what do you need Superman for when you've got elongated man knocking them over like they're the Three Stooges? I mean, I don't <laughs> so. Well, the story really needed a fourth chapter because everything got wrapped up a little too quickly and easily in this chapter. No, I, th- I think fourth would have been too much. I think three was just right. But right. I agree, the, the, the chumpishness of the Martians is pretty evident once you notice it. <laughs> once you point it I, out. I do like uh, – I got I to gotta mention and looking at the first page, like I love how everyone's being sucked out through the atmosphere and there's a giant photo of Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and, and Green Lantern getting bapped around in the wind as if to say, ha-ha, we're not there. That is uh, a nice touch. I did think that it was is. a nice touch. They did something kind of similar too. I think Mark Wade did it um, after Judgment Day, which again, we get to bring up the Overmaster and his cadre twice in one podcast. Awesome. That's mm. totally un- unexpected. Yes, but they, they did the Two same more thing where they, than they will ever get on this show. <laughs> yeah, or, or any other place on the face of the planet. Um, but yeah, after Judgment Day, when the, the, you had the schism where they decided to spin off like two different Justice League teams. You had the Task Force, you had Extreme Justice, you extreme. had Extreme, Extreme. And one of the ways that they, they showed the schism was by having a picture very similar to that, and it's cracked, uh, and the Marshmallow sees it, and he kind of tossed it off the side. It's like, oh man, those days are gone. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, they were. Um, um, I'm at a loss for words. Yeah, <laughs> but no, well, okay. I have to, I feel I have to redeem the story arc because I've been so harsh on it. There's so many things I love about the story, and it's still so much fun. I love the pie symbol on the Marsh Manor spaceship. 
I, I really do love the art. Even the Tuska issues are pretty neat, but the 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 Kupperberg issues, they're just I don't know. It's just it, it, it's it's polished. It's it's the the figures have great weight to them. I love the the political guest appearances. You know, these guys are very intense looking uh, uh, characters. There's just there's a lot to love about the series. It's just there's also plenty to make fun of. I will say that I think Kupperberg's art was better in part two when he had Pablo Marcos as an inker. In part three, he's doing his own work, and I feel like it's just. I don't know, Pablo's just got a really clean line, and uh, Alan, while he's a very, very good penciler and, and does a great page layout, I'm not sure he's the best inker. Well, and you got that two-page spread that Marcos inked, too, with the spaceship that has all that fine detail. Um, that's very winning. That, that was part of that buildup. You see the spaceship. It's so big. It's so impressive that you think it's going to really do some serious damage. And that's why it's kind of a drag in the last chapter where you never really get to see it do the kind of damage it seems like it's capable of. Speaking of spaceships, i got to mention – I mentioned it in my recap, but the Martian Manhunter little rocket sh- sled he's in from <laughs> just, this is Just League America on the side, that looks like a superpowers toy just that didn't get finished. I mean that, I that's that. awesome. I wish I had that. Yeah, I'm surprised they didn't make that actually. Yeah, it almost looks a lo- little bit like Superman's little, whatever his blue little punching ship was. Pissed, yeah. yeah. Well, wasn't there some sort of like hopper <clears throat> thing that kind of looked like that that was unproduced? But if you go on the net, you can find it. Could be. Yeah, I think there, so. there were a so. bunch of yeah, there were a bunch of toys that that were in the production stage but never quite yep. got finished. So even had a blue devil. That's right. Uh, That's right. Yeah, still, I, I still makes me kind of tear up a little bit thinking about how I could have had a Blue Devil superpowers figure as a kid. <laughs> that would have been so awesome. I uh, I loved your commentaries about the spacesuits because I was thinking the same thing. Like you know, hers has got the fishnet, but then Zatanna's is just clear. You know, an elongated man apparently just has a helmet. You know, I just I love the way they did the spacesuits. It cracks me up. It's just they're bizarre and very specific. Um, Firestorm. There's there's a couple things I want to mention on his page where he comes up out of the wreckage and, and decides to go avenge the Justice League. The first thing is you see the wreck, and a screw drops down. There's a very purposeful panel of this one screw dropping down. And i got to wonder if there's a somebody's got a screw-loose joke in there somewhere that we weren't quite <laughs> getting, because I really feel like there's something there. It's, it's, there's something there. I can't place it. But I love seeing Professor Stein. You don't see him enough in these JLA issues, so that was very exciting for me. And then the revelation that apparently Firestorm can breathe in space that I don't remember at all. Because, you know, I, I just reviewed Green Lantern Circle of Fire, and he sure needed uh, oxygen there. So I, I'd have to go back and look if there's any other instances of Firestorm breathing in space, but I don't recall any. I would assume, can't he just convert the molecules around him into oxygen? Probably, but you think that would, that would be shown somehow. And here he just straight up says, we don't need air. I, I know I've, I've brought down the spirits a little bit on this story, but it was hugely... I'm ready to throw these comics out. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even want them anymore. (laughs) They're great-looking books. As a Martian Manhunter fan, this is one of the only times that they've taken years of continuity and put it into one story, where with most Martian Manhunter stories, it doesn't appear that anybody's actually read a Martian Manhunter story before they wrote one. Um, So it's it's a wonderful credit to Gary... uh, uh, Gary Jerry? Jerry? Jerry Conway, that – sorry, I have, I have trouble with this. Uh, Jerry Conway took that effort. It's a great uh, visual uh, story art, and they blew up the Justice League satellite. 
After this, you go right into the annual where they blow up the Justice League, and you have the start of the Detroit era. Everything begins to change at that point because about halfway through the Detroit era, all of a sudden Grim and Gritty gets really big, and they turn the Detroit team Grim and Gritty, and they kill them all off in a wonderful story arc, a great story arc. It all really begins here because the book was clearly running out of steam by my reckoning by this point, and you needed to have this big explosive finale for the satellite era because it just wasn't working anymore. It just didn't have traction, and they just gotten Chuck Patton, who was a great penciler, who I think could have taken that book to, to wonderful heights if given the opportunity – Unfortunately, he then began to start drawing Vibe and Gypsy and a lot, and that probably kind of hurt him a little bit. Plus, he apparently had some – anyway, um, it's just, there's just – there's a lot to this story. There's a lot to recommend about this story, and if you put it together with the first uh, Justice League annual, it really is an epic. It's just it stops a little bit short here because the Martian threat isn't what it should be, and a lot of the permanent changes don't occur until the annual. But – this reading material is fairly essential. Um, so it's still a great read. It's still a lot of fun. But I find sometimes you go into things with diminished expectations and you can derive more pleasure from them. So if you build it up, build it up, build it up, and then you go in there and you start noticing the flaws yourself, it's going to hurt your enjoyment. Go in there expecting a B-movie and you'll enjoy an excellent B-movie. <laughs> well, I think you're right about it being essential reading for um, this these, these three issues combined with annual number two is, is essential reading for Aquaman and Martian Manhunter fans. It really is. Yeah. And, and I, I, don't, I don't know if it's essential reading for Firestorm fans, but certainly it doesn't hurt anything you know, for Firestorm fans to read it as well. I'd say it is because it's a, kind of a last shining moment for Firestorm and the team. And a, it's sort of like what I was just talking about with the Martian Manhunter. A lot of people probably got exposed to Firestorm because of the Justice League. You don't really know that he would have gotten his own solo series if it wasn't for the Justice League. And you don't know if he would have been able to sustain it without their guest appearances and without that connection. And this is where he severs ties with the team. So it's a pretty important Firestorm story as well. And it, and it shows um, at, um, Aquaman take a big old crap on Firestorm's you know, happiness. So it's true. <laughs> Now, the biggest thing missing from this three-parter, and I, I, you guys, you got to back me up here, is the hair-pulling, cat-scratching slap fight between Jen and Belle Jews. <laughs> I mean, I kept going. I was reading. I'm like, where, where is that? Why? Did I miss it? I go back. I'm like, no, they don't fight. It makes no sense. And it's worth pointing out that neither of those characters have ever appeared anywhere ever again. Well, they're both a couple of unpleasant women, so mm -hmm. it's... And those weren't the words I was going to use. Wow, so, nice one there, Shag. So I think they uh, they they can go. Actually, Belle Judd is pretty awesome. If you read her first appearance, she's got the whole '60s hottie thing going on, where she's full framed. She's got the cat eyes. She's got the lavender hair. She's seducing the Martian Manhunter. She's trying her best to mislead Superman. Superman has to put her in a chokehold over the course of that story. Um, so she's actually pretty awesome. I, if you've read that story, which again it gets referenced, there's a reference to an Martian Manhunter story in a comic book. Just that alone makes it a hallmark of a. Uh, 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 not a hallmark, but a touchstone for Marsh Manor fans because, again, somebody had read a story before writing one. Belle Juz is pretty awesome. I'd love to see more stuff done with her. I've actually gotten a really nice commission of her by Brian Denham uh, last year, but I don't think anybody in the comics is going to use her anytime soon. But this does mark the end of the Satellite League, essentially, even though it officially happens in you know the, the annual and then there's the follow-up two issues here by or issue or two by Busick. This really is the grand, the grand finale, though. For the for the satellite era, yeah, yeah, it is, it is. It's sad. <laughs> <laughs> Rob's all for clump. I am looking back on it, like, ugh. well, because you had that satellite blog where you reach this zenith, 
And then you have to deal with another couple of years worth of Detroit era stories. Yeah, well, I guess we should mention this before we wrap it up, because we were talking earlier before we started recording about like the idea that like I hate the Detroit League and I don't. I just think that, um, and I don't bash it. I don't even think I bashed it really even on the JLA satellite blog. I think the JLA Detroit era was a perfectly fine uh, idea in terms of conception, but not execution. And it's only things that are bad in conception and execution that I tend to really, like, go after. But I thought it was a perfectly workable idea, just not executed very well. So, you know, and it wasn't always really any of those guys' fault in a lot of ways that it wasn't as executed as well as it could have been. So, you know, but there was nothing intrinsically wrong with the concept of getting rid of the big marquee characters and replacing them with characters you could uh, write exclusively in the book. So, but, you know, just not... Just not the way they did it. <laughs> I personally love the Detroit League and stand up. I will always stand up for them. I uh, I mentioned what my first issues of Justice League were, but all, they immediately preceded me jiving in and reading the Detroit League on a monthly basis as it was coming out. And uh, I, I still love that team. And I agree, there's, there's certainly some storylines that didn't go the direction they could have. But I like I like the concept. I even like the characters. You know, it, ridiculous as vibe is, there's there's a nugget of a character there that could even be salvaged today, I think. Except for his name, his powers, and his personality. <laughs> I think you could take. I think you could. <laughs> I think you could salvage. I think I'm stopping the show right there. I think I'm going Except... right to credits. Right, soon Spring's done with that. I think you could salvage fans, all if of you it hear, except for the breakdance. Fans, if you hear the Firestorm Aquaman song. <laughs> I think, we're, I think we're gonna go right to the song right after uh, Frank's statement. I think we're just gonna go right to the Firestorm and Aquaman. Make us super fair. I think we're gonna go right to that. It's over. Yeah. I think we should wrap this up. I really don't think there's anything else to say about these three issues. All right, really fair don't. enough. Frank, so, why don't you tell the folks at home again where they can find you? Well, okay, you guys plug yourselves. I, I, I plugged up the show early in the episode. I don't right. want to plug it up again here at the end. Fair enough. So- I'm going to be doing a lot of editing. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to wrap this uh, up. Uh, Shag, where can uh, where can people find Firestorm if they want to? Uh, well, of course they want to. Everyone wants to. You can find them in your local comic book stores. Fury of Firestorm, The Nuclear Men. Uh, you can find it there, or if you want to read my missives, you can find it at firestormfan.com. You can also find that on Facebook and Twitter under the same handle. You can you can find Firestorm at, at your local comic shop. There's always plenty of copies of <laughs> Dang! That was just wrong. <laughs> so, uh... <laughs> hey, your comic... You, this is me really reaching. Your character didn't even get on the cover of his own comic this month, okay? Yeah, because he has such strong supporting characters, he doesn't even need to. So, hey, there hey, you go. So we're living in an era where Aquaman beats the X-Men. Whoever thought we'd live That is today. amazing. That is, it is so sold the entire Marvel line last month. Unbelievable. Makes no sense. No, <laughs> it makes total sense. Um, it tell, you have to look at that book. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That is such a gorgeous comic book. Yeah. So. It's no wonder. Um, and the character's kind of cool, too. Thank you. Yes, then. Um, <laughs> for, for my part, you can find Aquaman on AquamanTrine.com. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Um, you can also follow all my other Myriad projects, which is uh, 
uh, RK Illustration on, on Twitter and Ace Kilroy, my online daily comic trip. We appreciate it if you would follow that, please. Um, and uh, I think that's going to do it for, for this episode. We've been talking long enough. Um, <laughs> well, I will mention that fans can also go to my Justice League Detroit blog. Be reminded that I forgot to mention that Vibe's costumes are also irredeemable. Ugh. All right, we're going. We're going out on that. That's it. We're done. We're, we're wrapping it up. So, thanks. good night, folks. Good night, folks. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you later. Bye bye. <laughs> Have they talked you into joining us yet? Yes, somehow. Good. I look forward to working with you.